In April of 1992, a young man named Chris McCandless decided to test his mettle in the Alaskan wilderness. Attempting to live off the land, he camped in an abandoned city bus, hunting, communing with nature, and gathering native plants to survive. His adventure did not end well. Hikers found his unidentified and emaciated remains five months later. The mystery of how he ended up in that magic bus intrigued writer John Krakauer. An article grew into a book that brought fame to its author and the attention of the world to McCandless's tragic end. This is a story that always intrigued me, as its hero grew up in my hometown, sharing some of my classrooms and teachers. McCandless's fascination with the American wild and his rejection of our materialist culture also resonated with me, as it must with many young people. So, we decided to read the book that probed his mysterious story. Join us and sip some quality bourbon while we discuss this sad tale. It's time for episode 71 of Toasting the Classics, Into the Wild. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic, read it, in this case, read it, and then decide whether it's still a classic while we're drinking something related to the classic. What are we reading this week, Mr. Bill? Oh, by the way, I've got guest host Bill Hodges, who has done a couple of shows with me. Before. We did some Edward Abbey, talked a little bit about some some being solitary in the desert. I think this one is going to be part of a suite. I'd like to do a suite of like classic wilderness literature. I think that would be great. You should come on the show. We should do things like Jack London. We should do, I don't know, Rudyard Kipling or something. There's all kinds of great wilderness literature that we should do shows on. I think that'd be really fun. I'd Like I had never read Edward Abbey and I'm glad I got to do it. With that in mind, you and I talked about this and we chose the book Into the Wild by John Krakauer from 1996. What's the story of Into the Wild? So Into the Wild follows, uh, Krakauer goes into following this young man who's just graduated from college and he's decided to just go on a long adventure finds himself up in the alaska wilderness and it does not end well for for him and it's it's an unfortunate sort of true story i don't know if it's just because i'm you know i was a young guy not too different of a time from this guy and i had these same sorts of ideas in the back of my head but for some reason, this story really stuck in my stuck in my craw. You know, I was fascinated with it. Like when it first happened, I I got the book and it, not when it first happened. Actually, I wanted to talk about that later. But when it because there's a lot of personal connections between me and this story. But um, when it first happened, it wasn't on my radar. It wasn't until years later when the book came out. I read the book. was really interested in the story. I saw the Sean Penn movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this time. You know, we read we read the book again. I hadn't read it since. And it was like reading it almost all anew. I sort of barely remembered a lot of the details of the story. Must have been 10 or 15 years. And, but I reread the book and I got that book from the library and read that book as well. And I was not I, I went through both of those books over the span of two or three days. The Krakauer, Krakauer book and then his and then the memoir as well. And then the memoir by Corrine McCandless, his sister. I read uh, I read both of those over a very short amount of time. This is a pretty compelling story to me. So in terms of the story, I mean, the story to me is fascinating. We can talk about the book and whether that's a classic. I think that's what we'll be deciding. What are some of your impressions? What did you, uh, do you want to go through with a story of what happened to this kid? So, I mean, it's, it's what, 1990, 1991? 1992. He, it was 1992 when he hit the trail, the stampede. When he trail. hit the trail. Okay. So he's like, we're just graduating in like 91. Yeah. Two right. years. He spent two, he graduated Emory in 1990, gave all of his money to Oxfam. He had a large amount of money. I mean, in 1992, $24,000. I mean, that'd be a lot of money for a young person today. 
Yeah. And he gave, gave it all away to a charity and went on this great adventure into the West, um, which is something I, I see personally. This is where I start to diverge from this kid. The idea of going on an adventure out West is exactly what I would have wanted to do. And I did things like that when I graduated from college and, and during high school and things like that. I would have never given away that money. Never. <laughs> I would have I would have used every last dollar of that money to go on the adventures. I mean, you could travel the way that he liked to travel. You could travel like that for 20 years on $24,000 or maybe not that long, but a long time. Maybe not anymore. Back in in those days, back in the early, early 90s, you could you get a long way. And he was because he basically he drove his car out to down near like Lake Powell, like Glen Canyon uh, area. Yeah. Lake right? Mead or something like that. Lake Mead, like it was something country. like yeah. that. His car apparently got f like flooded. He couldn't he couldn't get the car to turn back over after spending a night out in the the desert, and uh, so he's just like, forget it, I'm out. And he like he ditched the car and left a left a note that anybody who could get the thing running, it was theirs. And then yeah, left he had the stuff. He left, had like, like this, all these supplies. Yeah. Yeah, like some supplies with it burnt up the money that he had a couple. He had like one hundred and fifty dollars left and burnt that up. Some of this stuff, I mean, to me, some of that kind of thing, like burning up. I understand not wanting to carry the gear because it could be heavy. I get that, but yeah. the cash, I, to me. That's something I didn't, again, I don't really understand that. I mean, cash is something you could just always use. I mean, I don't know. I also burn it. If you're going to get rid of it, give it to somebody. I'm not a big fan of that. But that that car, he has this Datsun, right? And yeah. I don't remember the year of it, maybe like an 82. It was an older car. It was an, it older, was an older car. And it was a four-door sedan, a very boxy Japanese style. And my first car was an 86 Corolla. That looked okay. like just a different color of this Datsun, like the same car. And I drove that thing all over the place and like finally ended up crashing it at one point. So it was sort of a similar. I was very attached to that car, too. I wouldn't have wanted somebody to give me another car. I would have wanted them to like fix that car up for me. My first car was one I was definitely attached to. We had like a Toyota Tercel. Uh-huh. It was very similar. And actually, uh, his sister's memoir had like a picture of the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw pictures of the car. The park service, they got it. They actually managed to turn it over. I think sometimes if you leave a car in the sun uh, for a long time, the battery will actually get a little bit more of a charge. I've actually had that happen before. And they turned it up and it, it turned over right away. And they took the car and drove it back out of the canyon. And then it ended up having like a second life chasing down drug dealers. Right. As like, as like an unmarked car with uh, it, the local police authority, I think, around there. But that's that was kind of funny to me. I kept thinking, <laughs> imagine him thinking he's just giving away this car and yet it puts another 50,000 miles, you know, with the police. Like, there's a lot of that in Crack Hours writing, like little extra stories that add the detail. And I think I, I love that kind of writing. I don't know if that's everybody's favorite style of writing. When I write articles about the things I do, that's how I that's how I write, like the blog articles that I write and things like that from traveling, like traveling out west. I try to write in little stories about things I learned and personal digressions and things like that. I don't know. I, I like that kind of stuff. But his crack hours writing kind of reminded me of what we read with with Abby, the podcast we did around desert solitaires. That was those were the parts that you and I, I think, appreciated most of all were the first person narrative descriptions of just being out there and doing oh, yeah. like these epic adventures that crack hour getting himself into some trouble with being out on not crack uh, hour, Abby. Yeah. Well, both crack, 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 cr
he does a lot of personal description. He did a really, and I thought this was the story that he told about skiing inland and then trying to climb an Alaskan, I guess it's a mountain. I saw some pictures of it. It was called the thumb. I, I don't know what you get, like a rock outcrop, but of much higher altitude than anything I would call a rock outcrop. I don't know what the word for, but anyway, a several thousand foot high yeah, rock yeah. formation in, in the middle of nowhere on the coast of Alaska. And to me, what he was describing was way more technical than anything, like a completely different kind of daring do than what Chris McCandless would have been into. And Chris McCandless's style of crazy outdoor stuff is more like what I would do as a kid, probably because we grew up in a very similar place and did not have any outdoor training. Like I would do things like what this kid would do, which is just, you know, walk off and try to, I, I never, I never learned to hunt or did anything as extreme as him in, in terms of trying to survive. But I also would have never tried to climb a rock outcrop because that's, he had ice axes and he had, he uh, sounded like Krakauer had been ice climbing since he was a kid and knew all kinds of technical mountaineering, cross country skiing skills and things like that Some stuff and gear that, that you need to do those things. Right. And I would always, I'm, I used to meet people like that when I lived out West and I just, I would just sort of like bow to them. I'd be like, yes, you're, you guys are way more hardcore than I would ever be. This is like a lifestyle. <laughs> this is not just sort of liking the outdoors the way I, I don't sort of like the outdoors. I love the outdoors, but it's a part of my life. It's not everything I do. If you see what I mean. I do. I do. I, uh, I met a guy, I met a guy who was an ice climber in Boulder when I lived there and uh, he was just like, he was headed off to someplace like this to go and do ice climbing way back in the back country. I think he said somewhere in Montana or maybe even up in Canada, but anyway, it was serious stuff. He had to know all kinds of avalanche training and you have real equipment and stuff. Chris McCandless. I think that's why Chris McCandless kind of annoys a lot of the really outdoors people because he didn't really have the proper training for these things. He didn't, he wasn't prepared in the way he needed to be prepared. So he got, he got himself up into Alaska, right before the snow melt hit the area the, the area right. that he was getting himself into so he was able to kind of ford the the stream and then got himself kind of trapped i think that's where people kind of took issue with that lack of forward thought in the yeah. process. he was like i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna live off the land i have a gun i have ammunition i have things that i need to be able to live off the land he seemed like he did have he you know he had some books on native plants and edible plants and things along those lines and those and those those are important skills and ability to gather you know berries and fruits and and even you know talking about some of the stuff with the wild potato wild carrot families and that's kind of what got him into trouble when we were up in Alaska, I did a lot of hiking. We took a couple of actually guided hikes, which is not something I've ever done in the past, but I thought it'd be fun to learn more of the nature, which we did learn a ton from these people, but they also showed us a lot of local edible plant life. It's a big part of the culture in Alaska in a weird sort of way that I don't think, I mean, there are people that would know what to eat in the forests of Virginia, like where I grew up. But this was like every place you went, there were people collecting mushrooms by the side of the highway and during the summer, that's a big part of the culture there, just just gathering. I mean, it's just not something that is very prominent in most places. I think maybe because the native culture is stronger and sort of permeates even the, the Anglos who live there, you know, like everybody has a little bit of that in them. And I thought I thought he seemed to have had a pretty good ability to to do that, to find the local plant life. You'd be much better shaped somewhere in coastal Alaska. There's a lot more to gather than there is where he was, which is in interior Alaska, not far from Fairbanks. 
I, I think he put himself in a situation and I think he knew it was difficult, but have you ever seen, there's this show called Alone. They, they put it on Netflix and it's, they drop off these people. They, they take like, I don't know, 10 people and drop them off at different locations in the wilderness, not too far from each other, but far enough. So they're not within close distance of each other. And they just have to live off the land. And whoever lives off the land, the longest wins the competition. Hmm. Um, and it's extremely difficult. They, the, 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 show, the show I just watched, the people were on a lake up in British Columbia and in, in the interior of British Columbia. I imagine it would be very similar to the kind of conditions that McCandless was dealing with in the summer in Alaska. And it was it just seemed incredibly difficult. None of these people could make it. Of course, they had they didn't have a gun. So they were limited in what they could hunt to what they could trap and what they could shoot with a bow and arrow. Mm. so that's kind of, and also they weren't allowed to shoot bears and things like that that was against the rule i remember there was one guy who killed a deer and he did a lot better than the other people on the show i mean he definitely had a big advantage because he brought down a deer pretty early on and managed to actually smoke the deer and keep the meat unlike what happened to mccandless well so he had he had shot a, a moose but he wasn't able to properly store it and i think he kind of miss mismanaged the the way that you go about curing and preparing and, and cutting up the animal so that it's going to dry out the, or at least be usable for the foreseeable future. And, and so he ended up with a lot of problems with the meat just going bad. It sounded as if most Alaskans wouldn't have tried smoking the meat. They would just cut it into strips and hang it to dry it. And I don't, mm. how does that work? I didn't understand that. It's really interesting to you. I didn't understand that. I, I, don't know anything about dressing meat at all but it seemed to me like why if it went bad when you tried to smoke it why wouldn't it go bad when you tried to drip it? i don't know that didn't make sense to me but apparently that was a big trick he missed that probably he would have survived if he had done that differently yeah if he had handled that correctly and i'm i'm not by no means a avid hunter so i can't go into those details as much but yeah, what he was struggling with there. So he, you know, he he was kind of forced to rely on plant life, on plant life. And yeah, that that's what I'm saying is from watching this show. If you try to rely on plant life alone, you're probably going to die. Like it's it's not it was it watching these people eat berries and even the people that really knew what they were doing and bringing in piles of mushrooms and piles of berries and things every day. They were wasting away over the course of time. They They couldn't make it. I don't know how people use. I mean, I think some of it was probably division of. I'm talking about like for native people. I think it was a division of labor. I think it was, you know, the the women would gather and put together sort of a base for everybody to live off, and then from pretty frequently the men would bring home something to eat in terms of meat. And between those two, you had you had plenty to eat. Even then, I think people in the interior of Alaska starved to death. I think native people sometimes failed in the interior of Alaska. There weren't huge populations there. Not a very healthy place for human inhabitation to some extent. You know, I mean, I think people moved around a lot and they could survive there sometimes, but not not in one little place, I don't think. And we're able to rely on fishing. That's a big thing, too. Well, that's what I'm saying. On the coast of Alaska, I think actually people did quite well. I think there's plenty of food on the coast. It's just when you get into the interior in a place like Fairbanks, you know, I mean, I, maybe you could fish the rivers. Certainly I crossed the Yukon river up there in central Alaska. It's really a big river. Like, you know, the size of the Mississippi river when you're crossing it, like a great big, huge river, it's gotta be capable of providing some fish or something, but anyway. So, yeah. So that was a funny thing. You mentioned the desert solitaire, right? Yeah. There's yeah. a bit in this book. He was talking about somebody from 
who did the same kind of thing as McCandless, who disappeared. I think it was it was one of the guys who who was being t- discussed in Solitaire was actually connected. There was a connection there, right? Yeah, there's a connect. Yeah, it's this place called Davis Gulch, which was remember it was called the Mormon Steps, where the Mormons had carved steps into the side of the gulch to get out of the Colorado River. Right. And um, there was a guy that was very much like McCandless who had tried living there back in the. 30s, I think, 30s or 40s, tried living down in there, and he had disappeared too. And they, they thought maybe some cattle rustlers had gotten him or something. Nobody ever found out what happened to him. That was Krakow or some of the narrative that he was he was using to kind of make some connections, draw. And he did he did a lot of that. Krakow did with it with this book, as he was drawing a lot of those parallels to talk about just the challenges that the and and the realities of how truly difficult it is to just be out there with very little the modern technology amenities that we are so acclimated to. Yeah. Also just being alone, just doing it by yourself. Doing it by yourself. That's another thing I could never really get. I used to love going out on big hiking trips and adventures with a friend, but every time I tried to do it alone, I don't know, for some reason, everything seems 10 times as scary when you're alone. Even if the other person can't actually provide any assistance in the face of things going wrong and difficulties and hiking by yourself, everything just seems way scarier when you're by yourself. I've, I've had that experience many times. I think I was probably almost 30 before I ever really started feeling comfortable going hiking by myself and stuff like that, going on like wilderness adventures alone. I don't, I, when I was younger, I don't know, it just kind of terrified me for some reason, but you know, when I was in, up in Yosemite, I, I was able, I would go out and do like an overnight, maybe two nights uh, of a solo hike or backpacking overnight. Yeah. And it is, and it's a lot because, especially because you have to take everything with you that you need. You have to take your water, you have to have right. a water source or the ability to filter your water when right. you're living at a certain elevation uh, here in North, North America and not get sick. And then you have to have your food, right? You have to have food to be able, that's going to eat. That's not going to go bad on you. So you're eating food that's dehydrated or you're cooking dehydrated foods, or Mm -hmm. you're doing a lot of, you know, nuts and berries and grains. I I had a cousin who was a big outdoor guy and he, he would filter his water. I remember he got really sick one time. He got like amoebic dysentery or something from drinking water that he found in the back country somewhere. He, I was actually thinking about him when I read this book because he grew up in the same area. I grew up in the same town as Chris McCandless. I went to the same high school, same junior high, same elementary school. The house that they mentioned in this book that he lived in is across the street from my elementary school. Like my bus must have gone past him every day going to school when I was a little kid, which is just very Mm -hmm. strange to me to think about. Uh, I was thinking about my cousin. And he always had this, everybody in my family always talked about him like he was crazy because he basically went out west and lived with a bunch of dogs and guns in Montana. And he was just like always out hiking around the country and stuff like that. I think a lot of the same impulses that would have animated Chris McCandless, like the need to sort of get away from this like stultifying middle class existence, which is, I mean, exactly how my, my cousin grew up in the same town as me, he would have been you know, five miles from my house and in a very similar neighborhood at a different high school, but in a very similar place. And he ended up that my, my cousin ended up, I never got the full story on it, but he ended up dying somewhere out there in a trailer. And I never really got the full story about what happened to him, but it was actually kind of, I gather kind of similar to the way McCandless died. Like, I don't know whether he starved to death, but 
anyway, very weird. That that was kind of haunting too. There's a lot about this story that me personally that is kind of haunting. Like I said, I mean, just the fact that he went to the same schools as me. Right, I think right. that's one of the reasons I, I read it so much. He and his sister, right? And his sister was was three years younger. His sister's uh, three years younger, so she would have like almost been. He uh, McCandless is nine years older than me. I actually thought maybe that would be my biggest surprise because I thought he was closer in age to me. Hmm. I thought he graduated more like right before I graduated high school. I graduated 95 and he's 86 and the sister's 89. So I don't even think I probably would have gone to school with her either. But um, they, they mention he had friends, two of his friends. There's a guy named Horowitz and a guy named Hathaway. And I'm pretty sure I knew their little brothers because I knew a guy named Hathaway and a guy named Horowitz and they lived in those same neighborhoods. They Because the one guy was older than me, so it makes sense he would have been, his brother could have been this guy's friend. And then my my friend Horowitz, I don't know, Eli Horowitz, it, it seems like a really strange coincidence if that's not his brother. I guess it could be a coincidence, but I don't know. I was trying to figure that out. I actually looked on Facebook to see if I could find like whether they were brothers and I couldn't find any information about it, but... It's possible. It's definitely the same neighborhood, which is weird. Well, and he came out the, to this area. He came out to the, well, north, northern California. He spent some time up in Eureka, Arcata area. And then he went north from there after spending some time down in Arizona. And I guess he like, he took, he, he like navigated a canoe from like Lake Mead and down below, I guess it would have been down below Hoover. All the way out to the coast. That's the kind of thing I used to think about. I'd look at a map and I'd I'd say to myself, oh, this river, this river goes here. I'd kind of like to, for some reason, that was fascinating to me when I was a kid. It was just like the way that a river would naturally travel and where you would end up if you followed that river. And I definitely, that's the kind of thing I would have dreamed up. I don't know if I would have had the chutzpah to actually get into a, a canoe and try to go down the Colorado River. That's yeah. probably a bit more than I would have chanced. And it, it sounded like he ended up in some bad situations. He ended up in a storm in the middle of the water down there. I guess it would have been in the Gulf of California, right? Isn't that where he ended up on that on that yeah. trip? When I was a kid, there was a little tiny, and I mean like just a rivulet of a creek behind my house. And I used to look at it on the map and I would trace it on the map of the county and see that it got bigger and it went to one lake and then it went farther down here into another lake. And finally, like, and, and when I was... Uh, 13 my friend and i just got went in the woods and just tried to follow the this creek all the way as far as it could possibly go as far as you could take it yeah you know and over the years we would try it you know we were little guys we didn't get that far and then i kept trying it over and again finally when i was in i think i might have almost been in college i think we finally did do a hike that lasted an entire day and we got all the way down to the potomac river by following through these creeks hmm. and stuff which was a pretty cool adventure actually i really we used to go down to the american river in Sacramento, over in the okay. Sacramento area, there's yeah. the American River, which which goes all the way out from into like Folsom, and you got so you've got like Folsom Dam right there, and that that go leads out to the Sacramento, and then eventually out into uh, like Carquinas and the Strait there, out towards uh, towards San Francisco Bay, San, uh -huh. San, San Pablo Bay. Yeah. So did you ever like dream about like making it all the way to the bay by going down the river? Yeah, that was that's some rough water. Yeah. yeah. And it's a big river, so that would have been a lot. That would have been pretty epic. But we spent, you know, we took little, some little kayaks out in the little, in a few little spots, but just kind of around the general area, not like long day trip canoe rides right. or anything like that or kayaks. Well, one of the one of the things you run into is that these rivers are all where, where there's a lot of people. 
the rivers tend to be dammed up and stuff like that. And that can be, that can be dangerous. I think that happened to him. I think there was a big dam he had to go around a couple of times on the Colorado. We, I had a rubber raft that my parents had won from one of those timeshare things where you go and listen to somebody try to sell you a timeshare. And then my parents sat through it and then they were like, okay, thanks. We just won our prize. And they were like, do you want to buy the timeshare? My parents were like, no, we just won our prize. And the people were like, fine. And they gave him the prize, which was this rubber raft. <laughs> so my parents didn't know what to do with it. And so I just had this rubber raft when I was growing up. And one day in ninth grade, my friends and I pumped up the rubber raft and we went to the Occoquan River, which is uh, the southern boundary of Fairfax County, essentially. It's a pretty good sized river as it gets close to the Potomac. So we got in the, we got in this little boat and we floated out to this island in the middle of the Occoquan River. And we like claimed it and we had this big adventure getting out there. It was actually really fun. But the um, the police ended up coming by and making us like towing us back because they were like, you're going to die in this little rubber raft out in the middle. Does it mean the Potomac is several miles wide at that point? I mean, it's no joke. Like you're right. You're in, you're in serious water there. And we were not prepared for anything that have could have possibly gone wrong. You know, we didn't, we didn't die, but. I was just reading, you know, the adventures of Tom Sawyer where yes. he. Yes. I know, think that's why rivers. Was, I think Huck Finn is where rivers get into your mind as being this fascinating thing. Yeah. Well, and he and the boys were like, we're going to go out and be pirates and play like Robin Hood. And they ended up like the whole their community thought they had all died because they had, were when they were out goofing around out on some island on, out on the Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. It sounds really exciting. I don't know. There's something there's like a romance to the idea of being out on a boat on the water for some reason. I don't know. It's another one. Another time. I, I actually bought a little bit better rubber raft when I got a little older. And, and I mean, I was way too old to be this stupid. This, this is why I'm a little bit forgiving of the candles because you can just get excited and make stupid mistakes. I had this rubber raft and we blew it up again, same thing. And we started on this Creek that was near my mom's house, which was in the Northern, you know, the central part of the County. And we were a good 20 miles from the Occoquan river. And the plan was it had snowed a week earlier and everything had started melting and all the rivers were up and like running really high. And so it looked great. You know, it looked like a lot of fun to get into the boat. So that's what we did. We, pu we pump, pumped it up and we go down this creek and it was really, really fun. I mean, we were going super fast down the creeks in our little <laughs> boat, but it kept getting into places that were not deep enough. And so the bottom of the raft would scrape and it started putting holes in the raft. So we get another mile down or so and we realize we're just filling up with water. And this is the mistake that I had made because I was just like, whatever, it's not it's not dangerous amounts of water. We just get out if something happens to the boat. I had thought of that. What I hadn't thought of was that it was snow melt. So it was incredibly cold water. It was like 35, 40 degree water. Yeah. So I'm sitting in this boat and it fills up with water. It flips over and I say to my friends, OK, we're just going to get out of here and go home. And so everybody's like standing there and I'm trying to get the boat out of the water. And it's, we had a rope in the boat with us and it was tied around this log and I couldn't get the boat out of the water. So in frustration, I start pounding on this log ineffectually trying to get it to free. And I looked down and the log wasn't a log. It was my leg. I was so numb in my legs that I was punching my own leg without having any sensation in it. And I realized we were like in serious danger of hypothermia. Like we got out of the water and we're standing there shaking, you know, and freezing. And we, we managed to walk like half a mile through the forest. And we found a Taco Bell that was open, <laughs> went in there and we're like drying off with the blow dryer trying. And fortunately, a friend came and picked us up and we all went and put on a fire and like fell asleep in front of the fire because everybody was like 
very seriously on the edge of, of I think we did have hypothermia. It was just very on the edge of needing wow. to go to the hospital yeah. for it. It was yeah. really bad. Yikes. So like I said, you just make like one little dumb mistake. Fortunately, I was in the middle of civilization and could and could save myself. But I could see how you might make the error of not thinking how much bigger the river was going to be. Sure. Some of, some of what Krakauer is talking about is how he could have potentially made it down a little farther to uh, farther south from where the bus was located. So one of the things is that he was a he ended up finding this old city bus, transit bus that right. was used for hunters and hikers in case of an emergency. Well, so he ended up kind of setting up camp there. Yeah, the magic bus. Especially that's where he was found. When Alex and I went to Alaska, uh, it was in June of 2020. And apparently that was when we were there was when they airlifted the bus out from the backcountry. It was way back on the Stampede Trail on the other side of the Teklanika River, about, I don't know, 20 miles west of Healy, which is super close when you think about it for somebody to starve to death, to be that close to a town. Um, that's one of the things that's really kind of like sad about the whole story is it's just really wasn't that Alaska's got a lot more wilderness than that. You could be a lot farther away from civilization than 20 miles easily. And but just the river, he wasn't able to get across it. No, he just wasn't, wasn't able, able to get across it further far enough down that he was able to get. Around. Yeah. Yeah. So they had multiple. So and this is the thing where it was legitimately dangerous because they had hikers over the years after the book came out and the film came out. They had multiple hikers trying to get out there. Two people died trying to cross that river to get to the place where the magic bus was. And that's why they ended up airlifting the the bus out because they were just like, this is an attractive nuisance. You know, we got too many people trying to get out here and people are going to die. So we actually were in Alaska at the only time where we could neither have hiked to see the bus, nor could we have seen it. Now it's in the museum, I think, in Fairbanks. So you could go see oh, it. Is that where it is? And I definitely would have paid that a visit if I if I'd known about that. But at the time, I think it was in a junkyard in Healy or something. And we drove past Healy briefly. I didn't I didn't know exactly where the thing was. So we didn't end up doing that. So what do you think of his impulse to go and do this? I mean, I can relate to it. And, Uh you know, you kind of think about how all the literature that he's read. Right. So he's reading all of these philosophers who are back to the land type of folks so he fostered this natural desire sort of this inherent intrinsic need to get out and have that adventure and to test his ability to live without all the modern conveniences that that we have and and so he uh he went for it and unfortunately you know he's reading tolstoy tolstoy's got uh, i think it's in I think it's both in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. There's like a hundred pages of the guy just going out and like living with the poor people and living in the wilderness and, you know, getting rid of modern conveniences and stuff like that and philosophizing. I imagine that would have very much appealed to this, to McCandless. That would have been the sort of thing that he would have read. And then, you know, Jack London and those stories are really compelling. Although I don't know, Jack London always made it sound really scary. Did you ever read To Build a Fire? The one where the guy just freezes to death trying to make a fire in the wilderness. It sounded like exactly the way McCandless died, like almost managed to survive. But then like at the last, what happens in that story, spoiler alert for something that's a hundred years old, but what happens in the story is he finally does get the fire going and he's going to be okay. But the fire warms the snow in the tree above his head and the, and the tree dumps a big thing of snow onto it and puts his fire out. And like, that's it. Then he freezes to death because of that. Oh my and gosh. it's like, 
it sounded very much like the sort of little mistake you could make. The, the wilderness is not going to forgive you. Nope. You know, the wilderness is not going to let you get away. You know what book is a little bit like this is, um, did you read The Martian? I saw the film. Well, this, the film is actually pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty close, faithful, right? pretty faithful yeah. to the book, as I recall. And it's very much like a story of man versus nature, which you don't get a lot of man versus nature these days. That's sort of a, that's one of those old plots that you don't really hear about anymore, but it's very similar. It's like, you know, you just constantly, nature's constantly trying to kill you and you're trying to survive. A lot of, a lot of books like that. There are a lot, there's a lot of stories throughout, throughout history of, of just that. Right. So, you know, and, and I myself wanted to go out and live, you know, went out and lived in Yosemite and Yellowstone and it kind of explored parks that way. I didn't go to, not to say extreme, but just the extent, I guess, that McCandless did. But I mean, it was, it was, it was similar for myself. It was wanting to get out and just be out there and be able to hike and live as, at the same time and not yeah. only live off the land, right? That idea of just living off the land was something I didn't ever really have like the, the drive. I always brought stuff yeah. with me. I was, yeah. I was really interested in the idea of building shelters for some reason. Like I used, basically used to just call them forts in my head, but I used to love the idea of building some kind of a shelter out in the wilderness. But I never thought about trying to hunt for or, or gather for my food. It just seemed, it just seemed like this is what would happen to you. you know, it seemed like you'd starve to death. It's incredibly difficult to, to survive off what you can just grab out in the wilderness. So I never. And it's interesting. You know, I grew up, my grandparents were and family were kind of hunters hunters and anglers my grandfather was a was a big fisherman and a big hunter he went out and you know shot pretty much any kind of animal you could think of but yeah i didn't grow up with that i grew up with you know wanting to fish and that was okay but i never was like i need to go out and kill some big megafauna to no i mean I, there's no uh, there's nothing wrong with it um no I, not at all I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of patience for people that like I mean, I don't like people who shoot a rhinoceros just because they want to kill something. I, I have I have no patience for that behavior. But anybody that kills something and eats it, fine. I go to the grocery store and I buy meat. Who am I to say you can't shoot something and eat it? It's, I think it, that would be incredibly hypocritical for me to say that. No, there's a huge difference between hunting for food and trophy hunting. Right. Right. I mean, I wouldn't have a problem if somebody shot a moose and ate it if they kept the antlers. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. No, but that's different. That's yeah, not that's, very, that's, that's not just different. going out. And so I kept thinking about, so we've talked about some of the things that kept us from behaving. So first of all, I would have never gotten rid of my money. Second of all, I didn't like doing things alone. But you know what always kept me from really going and going on some long quest into the wilderness for months or a year at a time is it, it was girls. I always had like a girlfriend. I never wanted to like not have a girlfriend for like a year and go and live in the forest. You know, I, that never appealed to me. And to some extent, I think there's other guys that wouldn't have a problem. You know, they just go live on their own for a couple of months. Not a big deal. But for this guy, I think there's some, there's a story there, right? Like the absence of women in this guy's life is a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a thing that kind of needs to be answered. Right. Why? Well, my sister talks about that a bit. Like, and that he, he does, had, a little bit. he does, he does. Yeah. You know, he'd had a, he'd had some relationships in high school and then in his travels, he, he apparently like on it while he was making his way out West, like met a few ladies. Uh -huh. I don't know if they, it didn't describe it. Didn't how sound, like he, dated, didn't sound like he dated anybody, but yeah. Yeah. The girl who was played by Kristen Stewart in the movie. 
that really liked him. But I think his desire for solitude is was is an yes. interesting plot line, or at least I don't remember if Krakauer used this phrase or whether it's something that I wrote down. But the monkish impulse, mm. right? Like the impulse for people, and I mean this is going through history, to for a certain kind of guy to just completely withdraw from society and live like a spiritual life. And this looks like this looks like that same impulse. You know, Krakauer mentions, and I didn't realize, actually, I thought this was pretty surprising, but I had heard rumors that there were people, Irish monks living in Iceland, for example, before the, the Norse came there, which is like, I don't know, I think they're supposed to have landed in about 900 AD. But, you know, before that, there were no human beings in Iceland, but, but there were stories that there had been Irish monks living there. And I didn't realize that there's archaeological evidence of that, that they've actually found evidence of of individual dwellings that predate the north north settlement so if you think about that that's a guy who took a boat if you go look at the map and you look at the distance between ireland and where iceland is somebody had this monkish impulse to impulse to the extent that they crossed the north atlantic alone in a boat found a way to survive in iceland alone can you imagine no imagine that life i can i can can not imagine doing that that just, that just blows my mind. You might as well be on Mars. You might as well be the guy in the story of the Martian in terms of how far away you are from all the rest of humanity. Right. You know, in a place like Iceland alone. I mean, I, I could kind of see the beauty of it, obviously. It's very compelling. The idea of being alone in a place like that would be pretty, um, I don't know, it's pretty amazing. But at the same time, I just, the, the kind of bravery and, or foolhardiness or something that it takes to, to do something like that. I think the difference is that we would want to be able to go to do that, but then we'd also want to come back. Yes. So you and I did that crazy hike um, when we hung out in Las Cruces where we went up the mountain and we like, you know, it was like man versus nature. We were really kind of pushing ourselves. We were pushing ourselves for old guys, but we were pushing ourselves. That's you know, right. we went on, went on this great hike and I like the second half of that day to be going back into town and having a beer. That's right. You know, like get some food, like go get back into civilization. I don't you know, I could see that I could see the appeal of being gone for a couple of days, but I do like to get back into civilization. There's two sides to me. I think this guy only had the one side. Really- well, so it's interesting. They talked about that. They talked. He Krakauer talked about that, and his sister t- talked about that as well. In the in the he talked memo- about the memoir, did you, right? Did you, did you read the memoir also? I, I did read the memoir. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Did you like it? Did you like the? I did like the memoir. I thought you know it was it was a little more it was a little fluffier of a piece than than Krakauer's mm-hmm. writing, but I also it was you know. But, I thought but it, was, kind of, it was also going into a lot more of the, you know, the background of, of their oh yeah family upbringing. So there was that. And, you know, I you want to empathize with with that and some of the the psychological domestic violence that took place there. Uh, you want to life. when I read that when I read into the wild, there's like this sense in the background that there may have been something wrong in the family. And I remember the first thing that I thought. First of all, he sounds like he's really angry at his parents in a couple of the letters that he writes to his sister and to the letter that he wrote to them. Yeah. But it's kind of a little bit, there's a little bit of a subtext. But the first thing, and this may be just, I just may be judgmental or something, but the first thing where I noticed is it was like it mentioned, oh, his his father had another wife before and he had like six half siblings with her. And I was mm-hmm. like, for some reason, right away, the right there, the alarm bells went off. I was like, I was like, that's a... You know, not like having a weird family structure is necessarily like a problem, but it's usually like it, it's a little bit of a you're like, oh, OK, it's starting to form a little bit of a bit of a picture. 
Like something's mm-hmm. a little, something's a little off there. First of all, that's a lot of kids. It is, you know, and it turns out it's because he was having children by this other woman after he got together with the, with the second wife, you know? So he was, he was married and he had had Chris with his former, right. had been his secretary who right. ends up becoming Chris and uh, Kareen's mom. Right. Right. Everything that went along with that and them having kids like within a few months of each other. Yeah. So the memoir by his sister talked about how, you know, there was a lot of discussion in the family and how the mom, how mom and dad, Walt and Billy didn't want a lot of that information coming to light and how Kareen had, had provided some of the information to John, but also had kind of stipulated like, Hey, we probably want to leave this out because the parents didn't want that. in there. Yeah. It sounded like her relationship with her parents soured a great deal over the intervening 20 years. And so she she was much more willing to come out and talk about it later. Yeah. I mean, it, and that's the whole separate book, but I mean, I think to some extent we're sort of just talking about this incident rather than just the book. I think when we get to deciding whether we're going to toast, we'll talk about the book itself a little bit more, but to some extent this, this situation is like worth talking about. It's such an interesting story. It's kind of hard not to get caught up talking about it. I want, I wanted to mention, so we mentioned uh, the girl that he met, Kristen Stewart, the one one yeah, played by Kristen Stewart in the sure. film. So, yeah. do you know where he was living when that happened? I'm forgetting. Was that no? Where where was that? Is that a place in the Mojave Desert called the Slabs, which okay. was originally originally supposed to be a military base? So they laid out concrete slabs, and then I think the base got canceled, or maybe it was in Quonset Huts, and they tore those down or something. But anyway, they left these massive concrete slabs in the desert, so people came in and started squatting on the area. And putting up tents and trailers and things like that. There ends up being hundreds of people living at this remote location out in the desert, I think east of Salton Sea somewhere. Okay. And so they're out there, and uh, that's where he's living. And you know, somebody we know lived there. Who's that? Our friend Nate. You remember Nate? Oh, really? Okay. He, I remember he called me one time after he had moved from Virginia and started having all the problems that he did. He called me and he said he was moving out to the slabs, and he ended up living out there for a little bit. And I'm huh. not sure if that's where he was at the end of his life or whatever, but I was reading about, there was just so much in this book that was just haunting for me. That just mm-hmm. reminded me of like people, I, you know, like I said, like my cousin that died under these mysterious circumstances, our friend Nate, who ended up, I suppose you could say dying under mysterious circumstances as well. You know, I don't know, for some reason, this one just really, really touched a lot of personal notes for me. There's a thing that Krakauer said, he said, he said he was interested in the story because of vague, unsettling parallels between his life and my own. And I don't think I could express it any better than that. For some reason, there's a weird sense for me. And I think that's why I you know, had no problem reading this again and, and got into reading the extra memoir and reading, watching some documentaries about it and being a little bit obsessed with the story, to be yeah. perfectly honest, because of those vague, unsettling parallels. Um, it's just, uh, do you think, um, do you think McCandless was crazy or or crazy is obviously not the right thing to say in this day and age but do you think he was mentally ill after the fact no i don't okay i i I don't i i think he wanted to challenge himself and he wanted to see if he could do the things that these amazing writers had written about doing Uh so he wanted to see if he could do those things himself and i think he truly wanted to come back and i think that i think i do i do think he wanted to come back i think i think or maybe i think he wanted to come back and he had these moments of realizing he was in big trouble 
Yes. And, and he was afraid the way you would be a normal person would be if they don't want to die. So I don't think he went out there to die. But it does seem to me like he had these moments of like the thing about get, getting rid of the car and getting rid of all of his stuff and setting his money on fire. I don't know, though, when you're young, you just do stuff like that. Was that just impulsive? Yeah, that's what I mean. It, you look back on it now and you're like, oh, maybe he was bipolar or maybe he was manic or something like that. But you're like, maybe. that's what you maybe. act like. That's, but that's what yeah. you do when you're 20, when you're 19, 20, 21 years old. You do things and you look you look back on it and you're like, what was the matter with me? You know, right. you just like, so those are bad choices, just bad, choices, but like really bad choices, like bad choices where you say to yourself, like, and there's not like there aren't adults that make bad decisions, too. I, I do not want to say that. But all I know is I make fewer bad choices than I did when I was a young man. So here's here's the interesting thing from the story is, you know, so he ditches the car uh-huh. and he goes off and take gets himself navigates himself down river and then he ends up backpacking right so he so he gets himself down to the gulf or to the coast i should say of california and makes his way back up with a backpack and is hitchhiking and is back and is just walking oh. all the way up but also ends up like stopping throughout and stopping for like weeks at a time days at a time a, f- a couple of spots where he had, had stopped for like a couple of months and was and was working and was uh, like yeah. almost like he was setting up some roots and then he for whatever reason decides I'm out. He and worked in that town. There's that town near Yuma. What's what's the one on the California side at Yuma on the other side of the Colorado River right there? there I, I don't remember. Um, but I've been there a bunch of times, but I can't remember what it's called. It's Yuma that sticks in my head. But he worked at like a a Wendy's or something like that, or a Subway. Yeah, he did like some fast food work, yeah, and he's working. Man. When he was in South Dakota, he like, and that's the thing is, he also went like from California uh, back into the Midwest, like made him made his way back into South Dakota. You notice he never went east to the Mississippi. He was no. always in the West, and I think that's, um, I get that. Like for me, the, the magic part of the country is the West. You know, I belong in the East in a lot of ways, but the place that just just gets into me that gets under my skin is the west i just love it out there every time i'm out there i'm just the landscape makes me happy the big spaces make me happy maybe i'm feeling that way because i'm in new york now and i'm you know the grass is always on the other side but i think i just always was obsessed with being out west even when i was a kid i remember planning a road trip in high school to drive out to south dakota just because i i had been to the badlands when i was a little kid and i just wanted to go back and um Ended up doing it eventually, but not in high school. That was a bit much for high school. He, so he gets himself out onto the under the Alaskan Highway. Okay, right? so he gets okay. I mean, that's a long trek, like from from the Canada U.S. border up to Alaska, and then all the way out into Fairbanks. Oh yeah, yeah that's that's, a, that's a long that's a long route. It's a long way from the border, uh, which I think it is dawson or someplace like that but it, it's a long way from the border of the yukon to get to fairbanks that's 400 miles or something it's these distances are vast and yeah. it must be must be more like 800 to get from the uh, where did he cross into canada i don't remember i don't remember down, reading that down in manitoba or alberta or something but anyway he, so i mean he's we're talking about he crossed a thousand miles of canada just to get to the border I mean that yeah. that in itself is as much of a trip as going from South Dakota to California. I mean it's it's huge distances up there, and he's yeah. hitchhiking. So I mean, can you imagine standing by the side of the road on the Alaska Highway somewhere out there in the Yukon and trying to catch a ride? I mean, <laughs> be, 
it would be um, difficult, I think. Yeah. I wouldn't want to try to say the least. To say the least. No. No, but he, and he was successful and he was fortunate because I think – and they were talking about – Krakauer was talking about how, like, people can die, like, waiting, like, on the side of the road. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, it depends on the um, time of year. I don't think he was – well, no, he must have been doing because he got to Alaska. He hit the trail April 28th, 19 – yeah, April 28th, 1992 is when he hit the Stampede Highway, the trail that he ended up on. So he must have been crossing the Yukon in March yeah, or early April. Yeah. And it is if you get caught out at February, night, February, March, and yeah, out there, no, yeah. March, March and April could kill you at night in places like that. Yeah, easily, yeah, not prepared for it. So there was that part of it that I found really interesting. The the other part is kind of in the sort of post death of him and the analysis that Krakauer went through to find how figure out how McCandless actually died. Oh, I was just going to, that was the last thing I was going to bring up in, in our ground game here. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think about the, um, the alternative explanations? So I, you know, so I, I kind of, I, I screenshotted parts of this and I thought it was really interesting. It okay. was that, so when the Alaskan chemist derisively announced, I tore that plant apart. And this is talking about the, the wild potato plants that, Chris had said, you know, I think it was the potato seed. It was the seeds, I think, that got me. Right. Is what Alt, was the note that he had. of potato seeds. Yeah. And so this, you know, so Krakauer takes these seeds, similar seeds to this chemist at the university there in Fairbanks. And this, this chemist says, I tore that plant apart. There were no toxins. There were no alkaloids. I'd eat it myself. So then he sends it to another lab and tests it for another thing you know and then finally he says john conclusively determined by means of liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry spectrometry that the seeds contain this toxic non-protein amino acid known to cause serious illness in both animals and humans and this and is that's the, what actually this killed is thing, it. this is the thing that grows in the bag yeah in the plastic bag so here's my here's my take on this and I, and I have no knowledge about the pharmacology aspect of this in any kind of intelligent way. What this sounds to me like is you know I've I've read other things that tend to attract a lot of scholars like for instance the Jack the Ripper debate and people get into all these explanations of like who Jack the Ripper was and blah 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 and all that. taking a lot from very little evidence and trying to expound on it and uh, this all sounds this sounds very familiar to me. And I'm, I'm an Occam's razor guy. I think he had a calorie deficit going for months and months and months, and he starved to death. I don't think it has to be that complicated. I think, I think he, you know, he's going five or, you know, what is it? He got in there in April and he finally passed in August. So you're talking about three or four months of just always having a calorie deficit. And you can see from his pictures, he was super skinny to begin the thing. And yeah. that makes a big difference. I watched this show alone. The, there was a fat guy on the show. The fat guy lasted longer than almost anybody else because he just had more calories on his body. This guy, McCandless, he might have had a three or four thousand calories worth of fat on his body to 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 fall behind by before he'd be in trouble. And that's what happened. He died. Maybe it's one of these other complicated things, but it seemed to me like the easiest explanation is probably the truth. You know, it's probably just he just couldn't get enough food. Is what it seemed like to me. You know, eating porcupines. Once every couple of days, you know, it's, I, I don't know if that's going to cut it. I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of what I thought about that whole, that whole mystery. What did anything surprise you about this book? 
Had you read it before? Had you read this one? And by the way, we didn't even mention what we drank today. I'm drinking bourbon because uh, they mentioned he was in a bar a couple of times and had uh, Jack Daniels. Yeah, he had some Jack Daniels. So I uh, I had some Four Roses. Okay, oh, that's that's cheap stuff, right? Isn't Four Roses pretty cheap? Cheap bourbon? Um, it's not. It's not like. Maybe I'm thinking of something. But it's not bottom shelf, but it's it's you know there's I guess it's a nice single barrel. Okay. Okay. Well, no, no, then that's all right. So that's not that's not. I think there's another one with a similar name that's like a like a rot gut type bourbon. <laughs> that's what you were drinking. Yeah. yeah. No. 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 I was like I'm gonna send I'm gonna send Bill a bottle of bourbon. That, that's not right. But <laughs> I've got I've actually got Woodford Reserve because that's what I had. I I meant to get the Jack Daniels and then I realized I'm not even sure in New York City whether I can buy um hard stuff on sunday i think i can but in virginia you can't actually so yeah they have those you know those laws you have to go to a state liquor store we have to go to a state liquor store and it's just not open on sunday. And they're not open on sunday right, right. right. I, I almost i think i've lived somewhere where you couldn't buy any kind of alcohol on sunday but it was weird in new mexico you could buy beer at the walmart actually you could buy all kinds of alcohol like hard stuff at walmart right and I remember I went in there one time Sunday morning, like just to go grocery shopping, and they put a curtain over all the alcohol. You weren't allowed hmm. to buy alcohol between midnight Saturday and noon Sunday. So it was all just covered with a curtain. I was trying to figure out, I was like, what is going on here? Oh, okay. This is a bizarre version of a blue law. But in California, you can't buy anything after, I want to say, like after 10 p.m., like liquor stores close. You weren't allowed to buy any alcohol at all, like beer or wine or anything in Virginia after midnight every day. Yeah. And it's funny how when I was in my early 20s, that was like a big part of my life. You know, I'd be hanging out with friends and be like, oh, somebody run to the be to, to the store and get some beer before it's midnight. You know, And then right. after you get after you're like 25, it's just never a thing. You're never, ever like out of beer and need to buy beer at midnight. Like I buy beer now and it's just here in my house for months. Like I would, you know, it's just there. Like I don't have people come over and drink it all on a regular basis. So I didn't really see him as a big, like big drinker. There were a couple of stories. There were a couple of stories. His sister there were some stories of him drink, uh, having some drinks, but it didn't. He didn't come across as somebody who was like a big like partier per se. No, no, I definitely don't think so. So we, you were saying about your biggest surprise? Biggest surprise? Yeah, the time when it was that it had happened, I thought oh. was I didn't. It didn't really dawn on me that he had been. He was as old as he was. Like he was born, you know, I think sixty eight. Yeah, yeah, nine years yeah. older than us. Yeah which, I thought, yeah, which I was, I was, I thought he was a little closer to my age. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I don't think I realized that he had already finished college. It seemed like exactly. he was young. Yeah. I think yeah. that was the gap. I thought that he had kind of done this right after high school. So I thought he was maybe four or five years older than me. I didn't yeah. realize he had gone all through college and graduated college and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, um, that was, yeah, I agree. That, that was on my list for the biggest surprise, but the, um, biggest surprise? the biggest surprise for me was the existence of the hand cart that could have taken him across the river that was a half mile down from the point where he tried to cross and i don't really how the how the heck would you know i mean i don't blame the guy for not knowing that but just the there's just this tantalizing he could have escaped he could have survived kind of thing in in, in my mind when i when i read that that's i don't know if it seems like that would maybe not be as trivial to use that thing as they made it out to be I think mm -hmm. I might have been scared to use that thing if I was him. But at the same time, if the alternative is, you know, being trapped in the wilderness and starving to death, you could see why 
somebody would make that choice to try that. But that that that's that surprised me. Just the existence of that. That just makes it feel so much more civilized than it sounds like. It really wasn't that far out in the wilderness, in other words. And the town wasn't that far away. No, no, he geographically. I think he said I think he said it took him several days to hike to the bus, but it must have been I don't know, maybe it's really difficult terrain. So I don't think it I don't think it was more than twenty miles. I think it was more like fifteen miles. Yeah. Which is yeah. awfully close. You know, I mean if I was in desperate circumstances, I could do that in one day if I needed to, you know, if I needed to escape somewhere. Maybe not if I was running out of calories and I hadn't eaten in weeks, but yeah, um, and had to get across to had to get across river. a raging river. Yeah, I mean, no, that, I mean, yeah, that whole part. I I could imagine coming across that handcart thing and maybe not even even in a bad situation, maybe that being too scary to use. I don't know what it looks like, but I mean, I might have looked at it and said, well, this is like something the miners left in 1890. This wouldn't be safe, you know. Right. Even what it was, what, what a good use of it would be. Right. Okay. So I think it's come time to decide whether we're going to toast this classic. I don't know who came up with this idea. I think it was kind of mutual. If my math is right. Yeah. I, so my feelings about it are the story is just completely compelling. I think people should read this book just to get the story hundred percent. I don't even think it's to discuss. I think it's a really interesting story, but I think we could talk about the book and I, I think the book is, quite a good piece of wilderness journalism, basically of like, of like adventure, you know, tragedy journalism. I think it's great. It's almost like a true crime story, except there's no crime. It's just someone's death, but everything leading up to it makes a really fascinating story. I think Krakauer does a great job of bringing in personal anecdotes, geographical and historical information. And I think it makes a great read. I I ripped through it. I, I, I would recommend this to anybody. I am right there with you. And I, I think okay. that Krakauer did an amazing job of just the investigative component of it. Spending, he went out for like phenomenal more phenomenal. than a year. Yeah. yeah. The legwork he must have done. He doesn't even oh, yeah. talk about it, but the legwork he must have done must have been phenomenal. I think he deserves every bit of the accolades that he got for it just, just because of that. I mean, this stands up there with like some of these great investigative journalists that write books like, um, uh, you, you know, like Tom Wolf or, or somebody like that. I mean, I think this is just a terrific piece of, of yeah, exactly. the, a book like The Jungle, right? Or yes, maybe not as historically important as The Jungle, but still, yeah, getting but into in the con- but in the thought process of like wilderness, that philosophy of getting us back to the land and what that means and what that entails, what that looks yeah. like, and how it how wrong it really can go. Yeah. I think it explores an important part of the American male psyche and maybe not necessarily male, but probably male. I think this is more of a male thing. I don't particularly see anything that would have to be male about it, but um, I, I think this is, a, I think this is a description of the males of the American male psyche. Um, and, and I think Jack London and, and uh, Chris McCandless would agree with me on that. Yeah. It's so I'm, I'm toasting my, my glass is going up. I say anybody that wants to read this kind of thing, go, go ahead and read it. And did we, Cheers, we, yeah. We toasted Desert Solitaire as weird as well, didn't we? We, we did, were, yeah. We were yeah. more on the fence with Desert Solitaire, I think, because it was problematic in a lot of aspects. Yeah, there was more problematic, definitely. Did you think there was anything problematic in this one? We didn't talk about that. I didn't really. Um, I mean, maybe leaving out some of the things about the family. I yeah, think but you could, yeah, but you could see why he did that. I mean, he probably yeah. he might not he might not have gotten the approval to do the project and stuff like that if he if he hadn't. Yeah, I mean, he he definitely had the family's buy-in. And the sisters buy in, yeah, right. And he and yeah. he didn't want to overstep in that regard. 
hey this is weird is there a siren where you live that's crazy it's always the sirens coming from where i live whenever i'm on the podcast but <laughs> sorry about that no no worries no worries i think we, we said we're toasting this classic this was a lot of fun bill i enjoyed doing these i think we should i think like i said we should put together a suite of wilderness literature and come up with there's i'm sure there's just some great stuff out there there uh, is there's, there's a lot of anyway so for tonight i want to say thanks everybody for tuning in and listening to the show bill thanks for joining me i really appreciate it thanks for having me everybody thanks for joining us and peace out that's it for episode 71 of toasting the classics for those playing along at home Stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking when we discuss the 1989 Tim Burton Batman. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your harrowing stories of barely surviving the wilderness. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.